This morning we come to Judges chapter 11, verses 29 and 40. Judges 11, 29 through 40. The title of this morning's uh, sermon is Yephthah's Tragic Vow. Yephthah's Tragic Vow. This account I consider to be one of the hardest lessons in the Bible. This is one of the factors of expository preaching. We preach through a book of the Bible verse by verse. A preacher must deal with these passages that are difficult that would perhaps be those that he would prefer just to pass over and and not to address. These passages can make us uncomfortable. They don't set well with us, at least initially. There's things in them that are not always easy to explain, and maybe they're not explained fully. But actually, expository preaching in this way is good. It's good for a pastor. It's good for a preacher. It's good for a congregation because we have to deal with these things. Preachers that rely on solely topical preaching, which topical preaching is good, there's a need for it, but there are preachers that that's all they do. The danger in that is that a preacher can address only those things that interest him, his hobby horses, so to speak, and can steer away from difficult things. We've probably all known Preachers like that, that's our human nature, isn't it? We, we don't want to deal with hard things often. But it's good for us to grapple with these hard things. Think about physical conditioning. Think about intellectual endeavors. We grow in health when we challenge ourselves physically, don't we? Whether we're runners or weightlifters or anything that we do physically. When we do something that's a little bit harder than we've done before, our body responds and strengthens itself from it. It's the same with our mind in intellectual endeavors. If we move forward and challenge ourselves in our thinking with the things we study, the things we think about, the things we ponder and read, our minds grow from that. Right? We, we don't want to be stupefied, so to speak. We don't want to just be in place and and rot. Well, the the same is true, really, in spiritual matters. We need to move on from that infant's milk that we thrived on when we were brand new Christians, when we were babies in Christ, right? There was a time for that, and there was a need for that. But now we have to learn to chew and digest the tough meat that the Lord presents us with in his word. And there is tough meat, isn't there, that takes a lot of chewing, things I've chewed on for years. Renowned Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser Jr., he, he wrote about hard lessons in a, in a book that was entitled Hard Sayings of the, of the Bible. And what Kaiser says, these, these hard lessons also may be viewed as a test of our commitment to Christ. Difficult passages can be handy excuses for begging off and no longer following the Savior. And our Lord spoke to people in parables for just this reason, so that some who thought they saw and perceived and heard would actually miss seeing, perceiving, and 
hearing. Indeed, the apparent harshness and obscurity of some of our Lord's sayings rid him of followers who were unwilling to be taught or were half-hearted in their search. We talked about that this morning in the Bible study. John chapter 6 is a prime example of that. These people were not willing to look beyond the surface of issues. They wanted it easy. They didn't want to struggle. They didn't want to move beyond what they thought they knew. And we're not excused from knowing, obeying, and learning from any part of Scripture, from any part of Scripture. As Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, he reminds Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now in this counsel that Paul gives Timothy, remember this is, this is a time when the sacred writings that Paul talks about consisted mainly, primarily, of what we call the Old Testament. And that is where he advises Timothy to turn, to know, to use these. We've all had hard lessons in life. I know some of you, I know of, your, of, of, the, of the things you've dealt with and the hard lessons that you've lived through. When I think of hard lessons, I think of my first vocation in law enforcement as a very young man, I went to the L.A. Sheriff's Academy and learned some really hard lessons there. And day one, showing up on the academy grounds, being met by these drill instructors who just seemed to be maniacs that were frightening. They were frightening in their apparent perfection in uniform and bearing and volume of voice that they could use, and physical conditioning they had. Not an ounce of fat on them, razor-sharp creases. I went during the summertime, I was in a summer class, and we weren't allowed to have physical training until after we ate lunch in the afternoon. So we ate lunch in that first day, eating lunch, trying to swallow my sandwich, and then having about seven minutes to eat that and then running into the locker room and changing into, into our PT gear, which was heavy, dark blue cotton sweatshirt and sweatpants. It's summertime in East LA. It's smoggy, it's hot, and we go for a run. And I was in shape. I had been working out very hard to get ready for the academy. I knew how hard it was going to be. There were, there were cadets in the class that were dropping out on the first run. And these maniac drill instructors were grabbing them by the collars of their sweatshirts and dragging them on the ground, yelling that none of us were going to fall out on the first day of the run and embarrass them. We could wait till we get back to the academy and quit and slink away, but we were not gonna quit on the run as a class. I thought, what did I get myself into? I've got 16 weeks of this. It became apparent during that time, what they were doing and why they were doing it. I knew it intellectually, but it hit home emotionally. These hard lessons that we were learning 
when during that time in the academy, those 16 weeks, there were three deputies shot and killed on patrol in the county of Los Angeles while I was in the academy. One of them just a few blocks from our academy grounds. And our ramrod DI came in and told us each time when a deputy was murdered. And he told us of this deputy just blocks from here, from where we were. And then later he told us that the autopsy of this deputy's body revealed that he had almost no muscle tissue in his body. He had gotten lazy. And this deputy said to us, this, this drill instructor said, this is why we push you. This is not the end of your training. This is the beginning of your training. And you are to stay in shape so you don't die like this deputy died. That was a hard lesson. And as I continued in police work for 35 years, I learned these hard lessons over and over. Every time an officer would die in our area, we would dissect and talk about what led to that officer's death. Now this ties into what we're going to be talking about today because that officer didn't die to provide me a lesson so that I could survive and not be killed. No. But I could benefit from it. It was a hard lesson. I hated, I hated it. I actually hated it. You know, criticize, in a sense, criticizing someone who had paid the ultimate price. Those of us that said, that could have been me. We learned from the lesson. But there were those who said, that will never happen to me. They'd learned nothing from this lesson. That's how I think we need to approach the hard lessons in the Bible, realizing that could have been me. I could have sinned in such a way. Then we can learn something from that. We now turn our attention to the beginning of the end of the judge Yeftah's career. And there's a hard lesson in this, one we should not take lightly. Even though it happened a long time ago, it did happen. It was not made up for us in order to provide a lesson. And that's what's so hard about it for me, is that this really happened. And when we read this, I, and, and we go through it, I want you to understand that. This is not just a story in the Bible. This is a tragic event. We've all experienced tragic events. We've all heard about tragic events in the news that are very similar to this. It's difficult. It involves suffering, pain, and sadness. Incredible sadness. We should never approach biblical accounts as merely academic. No. God gives us stories of real people who lived through these things we read about. They, they actually lived these events. We should never lose sight of that. Now turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Yephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So we come to the climatic episode of Yephthah's account. 
It's the final showdown between the Ammonites, the enemies of Israel, and Yephthah as Israel's leader. It's here also that we find Yephthah's vow and its horrifying outcome. This vow and its tragic result in, this, in the account given in Scripture actually overshadows the battle, which becomes almost an aside to the vow. We cover, we cover the battle very quickly. It's like the narrator isn't going to spend much time on it. He, he, he tells the story real quick, the results of it, and then turns his attention back to his main focus, which is this vow. So the vow really presents a new climax to the account. We would expect the battle to be the climax, but it's not. In the entirety of Yephthah's account, think of this, since the beginning of it, in in chapter 10, verse 17, Yahweh has not played an active role in the events. Yephthah has spoken about Yahweh, and in chapter 11, verse 11, it says that he spoke before Yahweh, and he also appealed, remember, in his address to the Ammonite king, which was a a landmark of, of faithful speech, he referred to Yahweh as the judge. But Yahweh has not appeared to Yephthah as he did to Gideon, nor spoken to him directly as he did to Gideon or indirectly, as he did to Barak through Deborah. In fact, the Lord God has not said anything at all, nor has there been any indication of whether or not Yahweh even approves of Yephthah. Yephthah, as far as the text reveals to us, has been called and appointed by men, not by the Lord. It is though Yahweh has been a passive witness to everything that's gone on. But we see that change now in verse 29 with the statement that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Yephthah. Now we know that the Lord has chosen Yephthah to deliver Israel. It also implies that Yephthah's activity that immediately follows this statement is a consequence of the Spirit coming upon him, whether or not Yephthah is aware of it. So what comes immediately after this statement is the battle. That is where the Spirit is upon Yephthah. And we need to consider that the coming of the Spirit upon a person under the Old Covenant was usually temporary. So that person could perform a specific task that the Lord had anointed them specifically to undertake different than the new covenant in which the Holy Spirit permanently indwells every believer, each of us, throughout our lives, always with us. I want to make my first point here. Point number one, God's leading is always in accordance with his word. God's leading is always in accordance with his word. God does not contradict his word. John Owen, that great English theologian and churchman from England in the 17th century, he said, and I'm paraphrasing him, personal words from God that contradict scripture are false and thus forbidden and not to be uttered. 
while those that conform to Scripture are unnecessary because we have God's Word. So no one needs to bring forth a personal word from God because Scripture does that. And if it doesn't match Scripture, then it's sinful. And we're told at the beginning of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, now notice, Hebrews was written a long time ago, wasn't it? First century A.D., last days. Those are the last days. The last days are after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. They've been going on. It's not like, are we in the last days? Yes, yes, we're in the last days. And so has been, so has been everyone since the first century. But in those la- these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God spoke to his people. This is, this is me now not the book of Hebrews. So this is what it's telling us, is God spoke to his people in times past by a different means than than he does today in the last times. Once it was through personal messages that God gave his anointed prophets, but no longer. That time has passed. God the Son, Jesus Christ, revealed all things that the apostolic writers, those those men who wrote what we find in the New Testament, he revealed the things that they wrote. So it's not in human tradition that we find the words of life. Paul in Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul's pointing us to the Word of God. Jude, in his letter, also speaks of the faith that once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered means nothing ever more will be added to Scripture. God has opened up Scripture, has opened up the canon. He's inspired the Word that was put into it to deliver His message to us, and He has closed Scripture once His revelation was completed oddly enough, with the book of Revelation. Scripture's closed. The canon is no longer open. We don't add anything to it. Back to our account in Judges. The second part of verse 29. We get this itinerary uh, of where Jephthah travels to the region of the Transjordan. He's doing whatever previous judge had done. He's sounding the trumpet to call the warriors of the Transjordan tribes. Those are the tribes whose land allotment is east of the Jordan River. To call them out to fight against the Ammonites. Then in in verse 30 and 31 we come to it. And Yephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now the making of a vow is not prohibited in the Bible, not at all. We see many vows made from Jacob making a vow to God at Bethel in Genesis, to Paul with a vow which requires that he cut his hair in, in the book of Acts. 
But there's no other vow like Yephthah's vow in the Bible. And this is, in the account of, of this judge, this is the first and only time that he speaks directly to God himself. The self-made man, remember we looked at his background, very disadvantageous background, coming from nothing, being shunned by his family, kicked out of the house, and he makes himself you know, a man of substance, a man of strength. He has successfully negotiated favorable terms for his leadership over Gilead, this land in the Transjordan. But he was unsuccessful in his negotiations with the Ammonites. But now he attempts to negotiate with God, tries to manipulate God, trying to get concessions and favors from the Lord like he had from the Gileadites and like he attempted to get from the Ammonites. But in this, we see a three-step downgrade in his negotiating results. With the Gileadites, he got everything he wanted, didn't he? He's in charge of everything. He's ahead of everything that they have. With the Ammonites, they, they respond to him. At least he gets that. But he doesn't get the agreement he wants. But with the Lord, he gets only silence. Silence. The narrator doesn't even tell us that Yahweh heard but disregarded Yephthah's vow. It's though the heavens were made of iron and this vow didn't even penetrate. Ironically, although Yephthah intended the vow as extra security for victory, it became a trap for him, despite his previous confident declaration to the Ammonite king, where he said, the Lord, the judge, shall decide this day. And despite the Spirit of the Lord being upon him, a fact which apparently was recognized by the fighting men in the Transjordan because they all followed him. That was the sign of a judge's anointing. But despite that, Yephthah wasn't sure that the God of Israel would actually give him victory. So he's just like Gideon with that test with the fleece, right? There's a problem with his believing and his being faithful to the Lord's promises. And also in this vow, we can see a self-centeredness, I think, that reveals his primary motivating factor, which is self-concern rather than concern for Israel. Note the personal pronouns that Yephthah uses in this vow. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. This vow is unnecessary. The Spirit of the Lord is with Yephthah. He only need look at the men behind him, following him, to know this. The Lord is doing the work for him, but Yephthah feels that he must add his own works to God's works. Has Yephthah misunderstood and misapplied a past event? In Numbers 21, verse 2, there's an interesting account. During the time when the king of Arad fought Israel and took captives from the Israelites and were told by Moses 
starting at verse 2, And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. Now this is very unusual, because this idea of devote to destruction, harim, in the, in the Hebrew, is a command that comes from God. But here we have an instance where Israel proposes harim to Yahweh, and Yahweh accepts. Now the circumstances are kind of odd. This is happening in an area that maybe had not normally been subject to harim, devotion to destruction. It's down in the Negev. It's in the desert. Um, but let's not dive too deep into that. We'll get, I'll get on a rabbit trail. But devoting to destruction is this idea that, that everything that is devoted in a city, if a city is devoted to destruction or people are devoted to destruction, then every single person is to be killed. That's a very hard thing to understand, another hard lesson. Come to Bible study Wednesday night. You'll learn more about that. So has Yephthah commingled the divine command of Harim with the offering of a burnt sacrifice? There's nothing in the account in numbers. People are not made a burnt sacrifice, right? That's, that's, that's an abomination. Those are two very distinct things, Harim and the sacrifices. The Lord has given Israel very, very specific commands as to sacrifices, and only what the Lord commands may be sacrificed. You can't pick and choose something else. It's, you know, God is particular with this. And the sacrifices to be made only at the place designated by God. And we see that this is a continual problem for Israel throughout the monarchy and before and after. Israel just cannot be obedient. This brings me to my second point. Those who misuse God's word face a severe judgment. Those who misuse God's word face a severe judgment. Whether under the old or the new covenant, both scripture and history show that God always makes his word known to his people. So our neglect of his word is without excuse. So how much then, you might ask, are we supposed to know and understand? Well, I can tell you, we are not to be ignorant. We are to know and understand God's word to the best of each of our abilities. Each of our abilities. I don't understand things as well as another person. So on and so forth. God doesn't give us a theology test to determine whether we're in or out. We don't have to worry about that. But God has given us, he's gifted us certain abilities. And we all have different levels and different types of abilities, but they're all gifts from God. Even non-believers under God's common grace are given gifts of abilities. But it's our responsibility to use these gifts wisely. We are to be good stewards of our intellect. We are not to waste our intellect on profane pursuits. The narrator here makes very brief mention of the event for which the Spirit of the Lord came upon Yephthah. 
which is the battle against the Ammonites. This only takes two verses, 32 and 33. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. That's it. The battle is overshadowed by this rash and unnecessary vow. A tragic shadow is cast over this victory that God gave into the hands of Jephthah and the Gileadites. Verses 34 through 40. We come to the consequences. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. He's blaming his daughter for what he's done. I wish this wasn't the only example we have of people blaming others in Scripture and outside of Scripture. But it's very common, isn't it? Back to the text. Jephthah says, For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. And now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her, for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. That's the end of that passage. Think about that. A great memorial of mourning for years for this unnamed daughter. Now, one of the, one of the issues we have with accounts like this is the lack of emotion that is in ancient writings. We're just given bare facts. And he did to her what, his, what he had vowed, and that's it. It's like, well, that's not how I would write it today, you're thinking. Well, neither would I. It's like, where's the, there's, there's, there's so much emotion. There's pathos. There's, there's tragedy. There's, there's, there's betrayal. There's all sorts of things that we would expect, but it's not given that way. And that it can be a great stumbling block for us. We must understand ancient... Literature is different than modern literature. It's not going to be written the same. This brings me to my third point. Sin cannot be made righteous by dedicating it to the Lord. Sin cannot be made righteous by dedicating it to the Lord. And sin, as you well know, is any deviation from God's revealed will being the opposite of righteous or holy. Sin is the source of evil, corruption, and death. 
And according to the Bible, sin is what humanity and all of creation must be saved from. And there are certain sins we find in the Bible that are especially detestable and heinous to God, which the Bible calls abominations. And no sin, no sin at all, could be made good or acceptable by humans, by us just saying it's okay. We cannot declare sin to be righteous. There are those who have attempted to do this. In our day and age, we can see this very clearly with abortion and sexual sin. Human beings do not get to decide what is righteous or holy. This is God's prerogative alone. It's an area that we are not allowed at all to tread into. Neither are the angels, only the triune God. Yephthah sinned. His sins were not made acceptable by his dedicating it to the Lord. It made it worse. It made it repugnant. It would, it would, we could imagine it was a stench in God's nostrils. So what am I saying? Am I saying that I actually think that Yephthah sacrificed, really sacrificed his daughter? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what I think. As long as there have been commentaries written on the Bible, there's been a disagreement with this as to whether or not Yephthah actually offered his daughter up as a sacrifice. But I do believe that this is the proper interpretation, and I will give you my reasoning for it. I have struggled with this for years. This is something that I wish was not what I, what I find it to be. We are all just abhorred the idea of a father not only killing his daughter, but making the killing an offering to our Lord. There is little that could be more distasteful than that. But we are presented with this in the Bible. We must look at it and under, try to understand it. See what the hard lesson is there for us. I'm not saying that the inspired human author approved of what Yephthah did. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that God approved of it. Absolutely not. I'm not even saying that we can fully understand what's involved here either. What we find in the Bible, and we've all struggled with this, is that the writers frequently refuse to comment on those things that we are very curious about. They go so far and they go no further. Well, that's because it's, there's a divine author behind this. And God knows what we need. He tells us what he wants us to know and not what satisfies our curiosity or leads us astray from his will revealed to us. There's three points I want us to consider in understanding this vow of sacrifice. First off, who or what did Yephthah expect to come out to meet him upon his return? So verse 31a is, is ambiguous. It doesn't really help us. The first part of verse 31, it can be translated as, as my ESV translates it, whatever comes out from the doors of my house, whatever. Well, you think, well, slam dunk, you know, that, that is, you know, maybe an animal, something like that. No, because the Hebrew word can be translated properly, whoever comes out from the doors of my house. 
Just the translators of my version have made this translation decision. A translator is stuck. It's like it's, it's got to be one or the other. And we've got to pick whatever or whoever. So we, we make a decision. But it's followed by this phrase, comes out to meet me. Which implies, I would argue, intentionality. It's not happenstance. So I don't think he was talking about the family pet coming out to meet him. Now, when we go home, Karen and I, we know who's going to come out to meet us. It's our dog. Our kids are grown and they're gone. They're not home. We don't have to worry about a daughter running out with tambourines and singing to us. Unless, of course, Amber and Evie are visiting, then Evie might run out with tambourines and and sing to us. But anyway, so, but we're talking about a different culture here. It's not like there was a lamb or a goat kid that Yefta has in mind, because in this culture, pets were not kept. There weren't family pets. Small animals were kept to be eaten. They were kept as food sources. So there's no reason. It's not like, you know, your puppy greeting you or your kitten greeting you, the, an animal that has affection for you. That's that, that, those sort of relationships weren't really going on. So I don't think he could have expected anything other than a person would come out to meet him upon his return. Second point, would or could Yephthah have intended to offer a human sacrifice? This is a tough one. We've got to be careful of two errors that, w- that we, we want to stay away from here. The first error is to think that Yephthah was so ignorant to not know that human sacrifice was wrong according to the word of God, according to the law of God. We, we have a tendency, us very advanced, very, very smart, postmodern 21st century Westerners, to think that anybody who lived in the ancient days was, you know, they weren't very bright. They didn't know what we know. But Yeftah, he's exhibited a very, very good intellect. Remember his speech, his message to the, to the Ammonite king. It was, it was put in a, you know, and maybe he had a speechwriter. I know you can't tell from politicians whether they're actually, it's their words or someone else's. But, but this was really a good speech, a good message that he sent. It, was, it showed that he knew his history of Israel. It showed that he knew the religion of Israel. It showed that he knew that Israel was dependent in all things upon the sovereignty of the Lord God. The second error we must avoid is being overly sure that Yephthah would never have done such a horrible thing. I know. I know this is hard. I, I have problems with this. How could... I mean, I'm a father. You know, and, I, and, and some of you, as I look out in the audience, you're fathers. You're, also, you, you mothers, you have daughters. You know, we all understand this and we, this relationship and how close it is. And so we just like, no, there's no way. I just, you know, couldn't do it. No one could do that. Well, all we have to do is turn on the news and we know that there are people that do it. I've seen it in my career people that do such a thing with their children. 
We should not attribute to Yephthah more than the text allows when it comes to this thing. Remember that during the time of Judges, we're speaking during the time of Judges, a very specific time in Israel's history. Israel had been commanded to depossess the Canaanites from the Promised Land. But instead, what we find in the account is they're becoming like the Canaanites in their beliefs and who they worship and who they sacrifice to which follows that what they sacrifice could very well imitate the Canaanite sacrifice. And the Canaanites did perform child sacrifices. We read this in our own Bibles. And how does the book of Judges end? It ends with this summation in chapter 21, verse 25. It ends with these words, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not what was right in the eyes of the true king of Israel, the Lord God, but what was right in their own eyes. And how God-fearing was Yephthah anyway? He's demonstrated head knowledge, right? In that speech to the Ammonite king, he knows stuff. That doesn't mean that he obeyed the law he knew. As we observed last week, his life in Tob as a, as a raider was one that would hardly nourish personal ethics. It's not where sterling character would be of great weight in, in that type of situation. To, so to say that Yephthah would not have broken God's law assumes that he was consistent with what he knew. And I ask you, are the Israelites of the Old Testament consistent with what they know with what they knew. No, obviously not. They knew one thing and they did another. That's fallen human nature. And isn't it possible that Yephthah may have convinced himself that given the desperate situation that they were all in, that such a sacrifice was not only proper, but pious? You you might say, Pastor Ken, how could you say such a thing? Well, brethren, I turn your attention to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, where Caiaphas, the high priest, convinced the Jewish high council that it is better for you that one man, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he should die for the people. Caiaphas, knowing full well that Jesus of Nazareth was an innocent man, it's better that he die, because who knows what's gonna have, what the Romans are going to do if we let him get the people all riled up. And Jesus' own warning to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 2, he tells them, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now who is our Lord speaking of in this instance to the disciples? Is he speaking of some wild-eyed pagans in a far-off land? No, he's speaking of the people of God, the people of Israel that surround his disciples. Those are going to be their murderers who will think it is an act of righteousness to the Lord. So, so Yephthah is not thinking any differently, is he? If, if in fact we find that he did intend an actual sacrifice, a killing of his daughter. The third point, we've covered those two errors. The third point under this, could this vow be fulfilled by some sort of lifelong dedication to Yahweh? Now this is a very attractive option. And it's one that, you know, we could really 
uh, I have tried to work my way through this and try to see how that could have worked because I, I would prefer it be something like that, but brethren, I, I, that's not the case, I, I do not think. One thing that's, that's offered up is Yephthah's daughter and her companions weep over her virginity rather than her death in verses 37, 38. And some people make much of this. It's pointing at her virginity. And in verse 39, after the vows carried out, it said she had never known a man. So some argue that she wasn't killed, but sent to a sanctuary of Yahweh as a perpetual virgin. And okay, we find that in Levitical law, the vowing of a person is allowed. It is a thing, but it has nothing to do, nothing at all to do with serving in a sanctuary. And neither is virginity or celibacy ever attached to that vow. The vow has to do with if a man dedicates his, vows his daughter to the Lord, that he then pays, a value is determined of the person he's vowed, then he pays that value to the priest and redeems that person. That is nothing at all like what some people will propose is what really is going on here. So that fails. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, he makes the point that if this young girl, this daughter's sentence was be, if her sentence was being confined to a single life, a life of celibacy, she would not have desired two months of mourning. She had the rest of her life to do that, right? If she could not get married and have children, she would mourn that for the rest of her life. Back to Matthew Henry's thoughts. Neither would there have been such a bitter parting from her companions who could have visited her any time later on in the sanctuary. Why would they be mourning her so bitterly if she was going to continue living, albeit unmarried and without children? He says it doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up. And I, I agree with Matthew Henry. Not that Matthew Henry cares one way or the other, but I agree with him. My fourth point and last point, do not make apology for sin. Do not make apology for sin, either your own or someone else's sin. Beware of the current cultural tendency to attempt to explain things that you're actually ignorant of. There's no excuse. There's no defense for sin. Oh, well, he did it because of... No, we're absolutely not to do that. The only recourse for sin is what? We know the answer to this. Repentance on the cross of Christ. We cannot explain it away. We cannot give a defense for it. We are not defense attorneys to defend the wicked before the bar of our Lord God. We are to share his word to get the wicked to repent at the cross of Christ. That is the only avenue that is open. Christ made that once for all time sacrifice for the sins of his people. Only his blood shed for you makes atonement. Atonement, a covering over of your sin. And for you to add anything to try to make this better or more certain, the salvation is to deny Christ as being sufficient. This is actually the motive behind the sin of Yephthah. The Lord God was not sufficient for him. So he was going to add something to it and make it better. And what did he do? He committed a horrible, repugnant, 
sin that has been passed down through the ages. And everyone who reads this passage is sickened by it. At least those that understand that this is historical and not made up stuff. And somehow, we are continually surprised that humans that are used by God are shown to be sinners. I think we forget sometimes that there is no one that is good but God. No, no one. We see at times great faith is when Yephthah testified to the sovereignty of the Lord, to the Ammonites. And for that, he's listed in the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 11, which we fondly call the Hall of Faith. He's listed with the other judges, Gideon, Barak, and Samson, who the writer of Hebrews tells us, who through faith conquered kingdoms and put foreign armies to flight. Note well here, their faith is in God having raised them up to face Israel's external enemies. It's not about their entire pattern of lives being as an example, a sterling example of good character and faith. It's the, the specific rising up that God had for these specific men where their faith is an example. So faith is not a matter of sterling character and morality. It's not something we do. It's not something we manufacture. Faith is a gift from God. It's a gift from God because we are not to boast in it that, hey, I figured it out. I'm smarter than than the average bear. I know how to get salvation. I have faith. Now, here's something very interesting. Old Testament scholar Daniel Bach has taken this account of Yephthah, and he says it's, he, he, he links it. He says it's obviously by both the human and divine author, it is intentionally linked to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And I'm sure many of you had this idea of Abraham and Isaac in the back of your heads as we've gone through this. He compares, Bach does, compares the literary style where Genesis 22 is deliberately detailed and slow-paced, particularly the account of the sacrifice itself, where in Judges here, it's cursory and quickly telescoped narrative. It's shoved together. And the actual sacrifice is only five words. It's quickly passed over. In the literary context, in Genesis, there's an intentional climax of lengthy narrative. In Judges 11, Bach says he finds that it seems to, it's seemingly superfluous. It's just suddenly in the narrative, and we're dealing with this. We're not expected something completely unexpected. And the purpose of it, in Genesis, attests the commitment of Abraham. In Judges, Yephthah is testing the commitment of Yahweh. And what's the role of God in this? In Genesis, we find that God takes the initiative in commanding the sacrifice. He speaks directly to Abraham. But in Judges, God is completely silent in the initiation and even the performance of the sacrifice. It's only Yephthah who speaks directly to God. And in Genesis, the sacrificer is the father of promise, called out from his home by God. And in Judges, it's the son of a harlot who's cast out of his home that is a sacrificer. The character of the sacrificer 
In Genesis, he's the saintly patriarch, obedient to God. He agonizes over the fate of his victim, where Yephthah, he's the paganized deliverer. He's independent of God. And, and Yephthah, Yephthah, excuse me, he grieves over his own loss, right? He blames his daughter. It's all about him. In Genesis, the identity of the victim is known. It's, it's Isaac, Isaac, the divinely named offspring. In Judges, it's a nameless offspring. We never even learn the poor girl's name. The relationship between the victim and the sacrificer in each case, in Genesis, the one and only child. What do we see in Judges here? The one and only child. See how that's connected. In Genesis, this child is loved deeply by the father. We're told that. In Judges, the mention of love is not there. Love is absent. The victim in Genesis is accompanied by his father to the mountain of sacrifice, yet What do we see in Judges? The daughter goes to the mountain alone without the father. The father just lets her go off. In Genesis, the whole thing is interrupted by the voice of God. In Judges, it's fulfilled and God is silent. What is the significance of the sacrifice? It confirms the faith of Abraham, where in Judges, it confirmed the faithlessness of Yephthah. In Genesis, it confirmed the faithfulness and presence of God. In Judges, it confirms the silence and withdrawal of God. In Genesis, it assures the future of Abraham and his victim. In Judges, it signals the end of Yephthah and his victim. Yephthah killed his only child, his daughter. Yephthah, in effect, killed himself. He killed himself in two ways. Number one, his lineage has ceased. His daughter died a virgin without child. Yephthah has cut off his own bloodline. In ancient Hebrew thought, this means that he has dead. He has died eternally. That life goes on only through our offspring. Well, that's current religious Jewish thought also. The second way is God has decreed murderers must die. In Numbers 35-31, we're told, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Yephthah, and Yephthah alone, is the guilty one here. He must be put to death. No other sort of punishment is allowed to be substituted for Yephthah's death, which we will see will come to pass very shortly. The Lord brings this judgment upon him. That, that chapter in Numbers, the passage goes on. It says something very, very interesting. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel." Okay, Old Covenant, yes, we're under the New Covenant. Christ takes on the sin of his people. But Christ also said, go and sin no more. That's his command. And did Christ atone for the sins of the eternally reprobate? No, no, he did not. Those who are in Christ are cleansed and made pure, and God the Holy Spirit dwells amongst us. 
in this wicked and blood-soaked land that we live in today. The gospel must go forth in this land. But many of God's people have retreated, hiding in a corner, as it were. Almost since the very beginning of the church, on the day of Pentecost, that we read about at the beginning of the book of Acts, almost since that time, many people have predicted the end of the Christian church, the death of the church. I know you've all read this stuff. You've all heard people talk about it. You know, the, 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 the smart ones that get to write the, you know, it used to be newspaper columns, now it's blogs or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's the end of the Christian church. Christian church is dying off. There's no Christian church here. It's not coming back. It's dead. Never coming, you know, never. We don't have to worry about it anymore. Good riddance. But we have a God who's come forth from the tomb. No other God has ever done this. The church has appeared to have been killed many times throughout history. This is nothing new. But each time, the church has emerged from the tomb. The tomb is not for Christians to fear. It is not our end. The Lord never abandons his church. The church is never without hope. The church need not retreat into a corner waiting to be rescued. But we are told time and time again in the Gospels to go forth, not hide down in the basement. So I leave you with the words of a very early 20th century Reformed Baptist preacher, Arthur W. Pink, who said, God is working out his eternal purpose, not only in spite of human and satanic opposition, but by means of them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your message, Lord. And thank you for these hard lessons. Father, I find that as I struggle with these things, I don't want to struggle, that your spirit energizes me and I understand how powerful you are and what your love is for us and what you are equipping us to do and how, Lord, I do not want to fail you in any way. We are ready for the test. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and for those watching, if they be in Christ, that they be encouraged by these hard lessons, that chewing on this tough meat gives them nutrition, that it strengthens their spiritual muscles, that it, it, it solidifies their spiritual intellect. Father, bless us as we go forth. Bless us as we come back tonight to continue in your word. Father, I pray for my brethren here and, the, and those online, those who are, Father, if they're struggling with your faith, their faith, may, may you open their hearts and minds to strengthen them, to give them assurance. Father, that we may strengthen one another, that we may in love, support one another. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.